All right. Good morning. morning. Daniel chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 23. Just go ahead and tell you up front that I am certainly suffering vocally. And if I just give out, we'll just pick up next week, okay? I've got some water back here. No NyQuil in it. It's just water. This is, the subject again is the little horn and the saints, part two. If you remember last week, we finished out in verse 22. But listen to the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 23. Daniel is going to be fixated on this fourth kingdom, and in particular, this little horn that rises up out of the midst of the fourth kingdom. The Bible says, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise from them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, And half a time, or three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away. To be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And here's the end of the revelation thus far for Daniel. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, this is an important passage of Scripture, because it is this particular passage of Scripture that sets forward most people's interpretive grid about how they view end-time events, or eschatology is the word. I took a class in seminary. Uh, Of course, you take New Testament, of course, but I took multiple classes in New Testament because that was my major, and I took a class called uh, Daniel Revelation and or uh, the Doctrine of the end, End Times, or eschatology. And I'll never forget, Dr. David Lanier would remind us that end-time events and the study of eschatology should serve more for us like guacamole. Now, I've never sat down and eaten a meal with just a bowl of guacamole and nothing else. Now, it's great to spice up your food and your meal, but you're a fool if that's all you ever eat, all right? And so there's a sense where we can be so enamored with end-time events that we fail to actually live out the Christian life in between the times that you trusted Christ and you're going to see him face-to-face. So just a reminder that, yes, this is very, very important. It should be an encouragement for obedience when you study end-time events. However, we don't want to be enamored with every horn, with every 
aspect of this and try our best to figure out everything. Some things we're just not going to know. But Daniel sees this fourth beast. The text says it's different from the other three. In verse 24, the Bible says it has ten horns. Incidentally, John the Apostle in the book of Revelation will pick up on these very themes. Yet, in all of this, he's extremely interested in this other horn that will arise out of the ten. And we saw this that last week. We tracked with this. So, the text says that he is different. He's going to subdue three kings. And notice what he says in verse 25. The Bible says, He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. So keep your finger there in Daniel 7, and flip over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verse 3. I want to show you a parallel with the little horn that Daniel speaks of, that's going to speak boastful things, and the man of sin that is revealed in 2 Thessalonians, that's going to exalt himself above God. Listen to the word of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, uh, you can take your finger out of that one and go over to Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. I want you to see a pattern here of, of the little horn and the one who speaks boastful things. Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which is exactly three and a half years. You'll also see this expression as 1260, 1260 days in other times. But here is, here is this blasphemous person using blasphemous words. He exercised authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Note verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, I don't know what y'all think about that, but that's pretty serious stuff. Is it not? How that Daniel sees this vision knowing full well in his heart and mind that he's in exile. He's going to be in exile. Um, he's been reading Jeremiah. You're going to see that in chapter 9 of Daniel. He knows that's going to be up before too long. But he actually sees more difficulty coming on the saints. It's interesting, this three and a half, time, three and a half years time frame, it's interesting to note that Antiochus IV which will be from the Seleucid kingdom, which will come out of the, Greco the, the Greek kingdom, he's going to lay waste to Jerusalem for how many years? Three and a half. And then when you get to Nero's persecution against the church, that's going to culminate in the Jewish wars. Now some of, I may be getting close enough now for you to register with some of the teaching I'm giving you. But the Jewish wars, how long will that last? Three and a half years. 
So here's the picture Daniel is giving us. And then in verse 26, we have this. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. Now, reverse your mode, thought process, back to chapter 7, verse 9. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay? Now, you've got to understand that the court has been called in session. And verse 26 says, but the court shall sit in judgment. That is picked up in Daniel 7, 9 and 10. And then obviously, uh, there is a recapitulation here of a vision of judgment. Just like Daniel saw that God was going to ultimately come and judge, at the end of chapter 7, it's recapitulated. And we see that judgment will come against uh, this kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world, and this little horn that's going to come out of, this, of the kingdoms. So notice two things. When destruction comes on the kingdoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the kingdom is completely uh, annihilated or it ceases to exist completely. Because we know there's going to be remnants left in all these kingdoms that begin to show up later on. Right? That's why Peter could say, uh, I'm writing you from Babylon, which we know he was in Rome. But what was he saying? Well, some of the characteristics of Rome, they lo it looks like Babylon. So the key is to grasp that the dominion is taken away. The empire loses its uh, dominion and its power. And the other thing to think about is the giving of the kingdom to the saints. Now, that's a sermon within itself and such an incredible blessing that the very kingdom has been given to you. And note this. And the kingdoms and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Check this out. All the kingdoms of the world, plural, will be given singularly to the saints of God. And note this. Who does this kingdom ultimately belong to? Chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So check this out. Notice the plural change from all the kingdoms of the world being given to the saints. But notice his, y'all see that in the text? His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. So the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of the saints. But Daniel will shift to the plural, from the plural to the singular of his why? The his of verse 27 is the son of man in verses 13 through 14. Are you Bible students tracking with me? Right? You can clearly see it aligned in the text. So clearly Daniel's teaching, which is going to also be restated in the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is that, that it is the son of man who wins the victory. And his people rule and his people reign with him. What we actually see in verse 27 is a reflection of our, of our union with Christ. When you have Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, you have it all. Amen. When you have Christ, you have it all. And that union is so vitally important. We have the revelation ending in verse 28. And Daniel's reaction is commensurate at this point with the disturbing nature of the vision. Now, it's all going to end well, folks, isn't it? But what Daniel sees disturbs him because 
these little horns that are going to come in successive order are going to wear down the saints of the Most High God. We just saw that not only in Daniel, we saw it in 2 Thessalonians, we saw it in the book of Revelation. So, Daniel's in exile, folks. He's 85 years old. Just think about what he has seen. Uh, The Bible will tell us in chapter 9 that he becomes a student of Jeremiah. And he starts calculating Jeremiah's prophecies. How long is Daniel's exile supposed to last? 70 years. So there's great hope in Daniel. Man, this thing's about to end. Well, it's obvious that he's sitting in the Babylonian captivity. He knows that one of the beasts coming up is Babylon. Well, he, he begins to see the second beast emerge and the third. But folks, this fourth one is something out in the future. And it is absolutely terrifying to Daniel. And again, it's going to end well. But if you are Daniel, uh, you know what the first kingdom is. you got a good hunch what the next one will be. Then you have this third kingdom with no reprieve that's going to be worse than the other ones. And then yet there's one coming that's going to be uh, the most difficult of all persecutions that befall the people of God. And Daniel is extremely fixated on this coming kingdom. Now, y'all want to have a little seminary class this morning? Well, I'm the preacher, so you're going to have one whether you want to or not, right? There's really no way to have the lenses to figure out and where you fall on an interpretive grid unless I give you the four or so interpretive grids. And then, of course, I'll end by giving you the right view, which is mine. Okay? (laughs) All right, let's pop one of them up there. And if I give out, we'll just stop. The first one is called futuristic. Now, this is the famous... Uh, interpretive grid behind the Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins Left Behind series, which I think they got left behind when they read their Bibles. But as evidenced uh, of the early church, it would be safe to say that futuristic or futurism is a natural result of the plain reading of the text. Now, we call that census planure. What is, the, what is the plain sense of a text when you read it? And obviously, some of this, when you read, definitely has to be future. If you're reading the Bible uh, correctly. So, there is a group called dispensationalists, or dispensationalism, and they are futurists. Now, you can be a futurist and not a dispensationalist. But you can't be a dispensationalist and not be a futurist. And basically what dispensational is, dispensationalism is that God's plan of salvation was through a series of dispensations and or stages centering on his election of Israel as his covenant people. Uh, a dispensationalist would see the church age as nothing more than a parenthesis, bracketed off in between God's activity of dispensations. So the ten horns from this perspective, is going to be what they would call a revived Roman Empire. And it will come to fruition at the end of all time. Uh, They they actually think, they estimate that it will be a European Union. This is all absolutely futuristic. 
In other words, when they read Daniel 7, like I've preached it to you, they're going to see pretty much everything in Daniel 7 as stuff that is out there in the future. Every, every bit of it. So, the little horn is going to be the future Antichrist. He will subdue three horns. And the basic belief is that, they will, that he will have three European markets that will resist him. And he overcomes all of them and subdues them. Well, what does it mean? He speaks against the Most High. He actually claims deity. He persecutes the saints. And for a dispensationalist, they would believe during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. He will change religious laws. Y'all see that? And shall think to change the times and the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, he will seek to change religious laws, especially in how it relates to the Jewish people. The saints will be given into his hands for three and a half years, would mean, the, again, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and it's commonly identified as the great tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. So from this perspective, there's very little, if any, fulfilled in the past, and for that matter, nothing in the present, and everything there is all in the future. So what do y'all think about that? Any takers? The second view is called preterist, and that's just a fancy word for saying the past. So you got one group that is all future, and the reason I give you these names is because I'm expecting you to do your homework, right? To look these up and to think about it and see what you think the Bible says about it. So this simply means past. In other words, when they read Daniel 7, they would feel like everything in Daniel 7 was fulfilled in the past. Every bit of it. The ten horns would represent the ten provinces of the Roman Empire, or possibly a senate. So ten is not necessarily taken literally. In this view, it can be uh, symbolically uh, speaking of the fullness of the Roman Empire. The little horn is not seen as one person, but the Caesars. Now, if you remember Roman history, it started as a republic. Did y'all know that? So did our country, <coughs> right? Then Julius Caesar comes along and seizes power and becomes the Caesar or the emperor. So Rome goes from being a republic to an empire under the Caesar. So the little horn is the successive line of Caesars. The subduing would be the pulling away from the Senate. The speaking against the Most High would actually be Caesar speaking against one another because they all claim to be God, right? They claim deity. In this view, the wearing down of the saints will be referring to the Roman persecution against Christians under the Roman Caesars. Remember, it started under Nero, and it carried through Vespasian, and all the way through Trajan and Domitian. So the changes in law would be that the Caesars perverted human and divine laws. And the three and a half years would only be symbolic as established of a time when God would terminate the, and end this particular war. And the half time would mean that at a certain time, God will make it shorter. He'll just cut it off. That's the symbolic understanding. Did you know there's a preterist view, num preterist view number two that's also out there? And it believes that the ten horns were the ten Caesars, and the little horn is Herod the Great. Y'all remember that rascal? I mean, folks, if you were a Jew living... And you knew something of the preterist view, 
and you were thinking about the past, and you were living during Herod's day, son, I'm telling you, you would certainly identify this cat as a little horn. He uh, was part Jew, part Roman, Idumean. He would end up being the king of Judea. And then he would actually, there would be a successive series of these Herods in the New Testament. And all of them, without exception, are going to persecute the church. The subduing of the three horns would be three emperors giving their power to the three Herods. And history tells us that the Herod family increased in power. The opposition to the Most High, they would say, is Herod's opposition to who? Jesus. Y'all remember the story? Herod found out where he was going to be born. He inquired of the wise men. Where did you go? So they would see this as being fulfilled uh, in full in the past. Acts 12, uh, Herod is boasting of great things. Y'all remember Acts 12? I did preach all the way through Acts. He boasts of great things, and what does God do? Strikes him down immediately and kills him. So people start, it's easy to, to see some links in your interpretive grid, whether you see it all as futuristic or all in the past. He would eventually try, he does kill James, Herod does, and he eventually tries to kill Peter. The change in times and laws that would say, they would say is an attempt to change God's decrees involving the Son of Man and the saints. And the saints given into his hands would be Nero's persecution that's, or merely symbolic from Pentecost A.D. 70. So, again, the preterist view sees everything in the past. All right, we're moving great. Next is the historicist view. Did y'all know that before the mid-1800s, that was pretty much the only view that existed? Isn't that interesting? That no one ever read Daniel before the mid-1800s and thought, you know what, all this is in the future. And, for the most part, they never read it and thought... Every bit of this is in the past. So this is kind of fascinating to me. The ten horns would be the Roman Empire divided into ten empires after its fall. The Roman Empire falls in the late 400s and actually divides into ten empires. And the little horn that emerges from the ten horns is actually the papacy, which we know as the Roman Catholic Church. This was the view that was held for 12 Hundred years. That's the actual view. And, and many, many, many people believe this to this day. So the little horn that emerges uh, in the ten horns is actually the papacy. Now this is not the Pope in particular, but the power of the Pope. Because we know that Popes came and Popes died, right? So this, uh, again, to subdue three horns would refer to the three states that were overcome, and that were all incorporated into the Holy Roman Empire. That's what happens, by the way, when the Roman Empire falls. It falls into ten European states that end up comp comprising the Holy Roman Empire. So the most would speak of the popes claiming to be the vicar of Christ on earth as uh, speaking high and lofty things to God. In other words, when a pope claims to be the actual vicar of Christ on earth, then that's called blasphemy. Are y'all listening? And that's literally what the Pope believes. When he takes the seat of Peter ex cathedra, he is actually the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth. And I don't care who you are if you've read your Bible, that's blasphemy. 
And so they would look at that and think that this had to be the Roman Catholic Church. Today, did you know that 90% of persecution that comes toward Christians comes from the Islamic faith? Did y'all know that? But did you know and understand that roughly 600 AD up into the 1700s, the vast majority of persecution upon Christians was actually perpetrated by the Roman Catholic Church? If you don't believe this, just pick up a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it. So the changes in times and laws would be the institution of the holy days or obligations of things that you think are going to make you become a Christian. But in reality, you're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. So they would see those as as, uh, perverting the gospel. So the saints given in hands for time and times and half a time would be very interesting. They turn it around and make it years So they take 1260, turn it into years. So if you start at 1400 and go to 1700, right, somewhere in there, you're looking at 1260 years. Now, folks, if you're going to make it fit your system, you have to change some stuff, right? No, you're not supposed to change anything, okay? But that's what they did. It has to fit their system, so they do this. They would say that this ended at the French Revolution, you got to fit this 1,260 years in there somewhere. Okay, there's one more, and it's called the Idealist. And it says that the ten horns are the fragmented kingdoms that grow out of Rome. So Rome is destroyed in the late 400s. The little horn is seen first as a type. Uh, In other words, there are going to be a lot of little horns throughout history that are going to come in fulfillment. They're going to be like Antichrist of the age. In this view, the persecution lasts for the entirety of the church age. From the advent of Christ uh, until he comes again. That's called the inner advent period. From the time that Jesus came down from heaven in Bethlehem and for, until the time he returns again. They would, an idealist perspective would say there's going to be many antichrists that come. So the three and a half years is symbolic of persecution in this entire period, and okay, are y'all good? Futuristic, preterist, historicist, and idealist. Y'all got takers? Y'all want to do multiple guess? <coughs> Figure out where you are. Okay, let's summarize and share with you what the real view is. No, let's summarize here. Let me see what time it is. Oh, we're doing good. Okay. This is a great Sunday morning devotion, isn't it? Y'all just getting this? Hey, we're going to pick up steam before long, okay? This is some of the difficult passages in the Bible. And if you're going to deal with preaching the Bible, you've got to deal with difficult passages, okay? The fourth kingdom in Daniel 7 is obviously the Roman Empire. Now, folks, there aren't any scholars that read the Bible that disagree with that. Uh, your futurists, your idealists, all of those guys are going to believe that that fourth kingdom that Daniel sees is the Roman Empire. Notice very clearly, in Daniel 2 and 7, there is a fifth kingdom. And that's the eternal kingdom of the Son of God. I like that kingdom, don't you? Is There's a fifth kingdom. Now, we learned last week that the only way we can really fill in the gaps of Old Testament prophecy and apocalyptic literature is to use the New Testament. Well, here's the deal. I personally don't see a gap between the fourth and the fifth kingdoms. 
When I say forth, I'm talking about the Roman Empire, and then I'm talking about Christ's kingdom, okay? I don't see a gap. There's no question that the kingdom of Christ is inaugurated when? During the Roman Empire, right? You have read your Bibles, right? The census is called, and everyone returns to their hometown, and Mary and Joseph, she's great with child, they return to Bethlehem of Judea. Y'all know the story. It's during the Roman Empire that Christ is born. It's when he is inaugurated. He inaugurates his reign here on earth. So the fifth kingdom is established with Christ's ascension into heaven, having completed your redemption. Right? Listen to this. 13. I saw in the night visions, chapter 7, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Folks, that's not coming to earth. That is one going to the Ancient of Days. Direction is important here. This is not the second coming. This is Christ fulfilling his mission. How many times did he say in the Gospels, I'm going back to my Father and receive the glory that I had from the beginning. He was here on a mission. He was here on a mission to redeem sinners. To accomplish our redemption. So there's no question that the fifth kingdom is established in Christ. It is, it is, it is accomplished in verse 13 and 14. What I'm saying is that Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth when he ascended to the Father. Now think about this. Did Jesus not say that in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And then, of course, he gives us the mission. Go and make disciples. He already had all authority. He's not waiting for it. He's not waiting to reign. He already reigns. That's the teaching of the Bible. In Acts 2.36, the Bible says he has been appointed both Lord and Christ. He's Lord of all. He is given that name. The most frequently quoted psalm in the entire New Testament is Psalm 110. Y'all know that psalm? It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in looking at Daniel, we must conclude that Jesus Christ is actually enthroned in heaven in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He sees the Son of Man enthroned in heaven having come to this earth and completed your redemption. Right? That's the way we should see that. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Now, folks, there's a difference between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. Right? The fourth kingdom, Rome, has its dominion taken away. And there's another king on the stage. And his name is Jesus Christ. He has his dominion taken away. Uh, how, did, how did the Romans view the Apostle Paul? They viewed him as a treasonist. Why? Because he came preaching that there's another king. That's the way the book of Acts is designed. They're going out to all the places, whether it's Ephesus or Philippi or Macedonia or Thessalonica. They're going out and preaching that Jesus Christ, he's not applying for the job. He's already king. And they're going out and preaching that. And Daniel reminds us of the same thing that Revelation reminds us of. Revelation 4 and 5 gives you a scene of heaven. And the 24 elders and the Son of God 
is on his throne. And he's the only one that's able to emerge and to take the scroll and to open it up and to break its seals. That's exactly what Daniel is seeing here in chapter 7, 13 and 14. So the saints, however, now get this, in Revelation 4 and 5, God is on his throne. Jesus is highly exalted. But what's going on on earth as John is writing the book of Revelation? The people of God are being persecuted mightily by Nero. And don't we need to see heaven's view of things when we're persecuted? Don't we need to see that Jesus is on the throne? And that's exactly what happens in Daniel. Jesus is highly exalted on his throne, but the people are going through hell sideways on the face of the earth. In Daniel's day, they're being persecuted. And the same thing is true when you get to the book of Revelation. While the saints of God are suffering under the kings of the earth, the reminder in the book of Revelation is that there is a real king who is actually the true king who is enthroned in the heavens, and our God rules the world. So this is a message of hope to us. We need to remember this. No matter what's going on in this world, uh, whatever governing power may be in power, there's a real king who's enthroned in heaven, who governs over all things. So according to this text, the, the, the throne, the fourth kingdom is dethroned. It loses its dominion because the true king has been enthroned. And his kingdom has been inaugurated. It continued. The Roman Empire continued a demise as more and more people came to trust Jesus as their Lord. Now think about that, folks. That's how the world has changed. You would not be here today were it not for the Macedonian vision, where Paul goes one direction instead of another. That's not an accident, folks. And that kingdom is losing the, that Roman Empire, that gigantic, massive empire continually to this day loses dominion. Why? Because Jesus is king and he's saving people. So it's the Christian movement. So during the time between the enthronement of Christ, which I am arguing takes place at his ascension and his return, the saints are actually given the kingdom. Now let's think about that for a moment. When did you receive the kingdom of God? Is it only in the future? Oh, that's a colossus mistake if you say that. Because the Bible teaches that when you trusted Christ, you were given the kingdom of God. And no antichrist and no man of lawlessness can take that away from the saints of God. It's yours. So understand something. There's the already and the not yet. But if you are saved today, you are part of the kingdom of God. That's who you are. You are a, you're a child of the king. And if you're united in Jesus Christ, then you're part of his kingdom. The kingdom is your inheritance. But like with any inheritance, you have not received the fullness of all of it yet. Don't you look forward to that? I mean, the earth can strip you of your freedom. It can rob you uh, of your health. It can take away everything, but it can't take Jesus away from you. See, you've got... A lot of that inheritance already. But you don't have it all. There's the already and the not yet. You've not taken full possession of all that's yours in Christ to this point. But the Father has granted you. The Antichrist or the devil or demons can't take it away. It belongs to you forever. You will fully possess it one day in the future when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in all of His glory. Yet between the enthronement of Christ, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, 
and Him coming fully in His glory, you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory, the saints on the earth are going to face hostility and persecution. Now folks, wake up. You live in America. You live in an anomaly. There's never a country that's ever existed where there was less persecution than ours. And people are dying for the cause of Christ every single day in this world. And I want to remind you that the biblical understanding is that Jesus will return one day in power and glory. But in this intermediate time between the two advents, the church of the living God will be persecuted. So the little horn of Daniel 7 is a type of Antichrist who exists throughout the church age in the inner advent period. So past and present and future figures can truly be called Antichrist. I have no reservation in calling that dude over North Korea a form of an Antichrist. He, won't, he seeks to be worshipped. So he's taking his place where only God deserves to be. He actually demands worship. And he persecutes people when they don't. John actually says many Antichrists, plural, have gone out into the world. Y'all ever read that? That's in the New Testament, right? 1 John 2.18. Here's the thing. Don't make the error of looking at the political landscape and saying, well, all these world leaders that have policies against Christians, then they're necessarily Antichrist. Because when you get to the New Testament, the primary emphasis is not, is not on the political thing, but on the doctrinal thing. What does John say? He is the spirit of the Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You are the spirit of the Antichrist if you don't believe that the Son of God left heaven and came down to this earth and became a man. If you deny that Jesus is who he said he is, then you are the spirit of the Antichrist. Wow. So the emphasis, don't be enamored with political figures who are opposing the gospel and are blasphemous dictators. We need to be mindful of those wolves in sheep clothing that get inside of the church of the living God and, and try to make you... Uh, compromise on doctrinal issues. And the biggest doctrinal heresy in the world is to not get it right concerning who Jesus Christ is. John says, you know who the Antichrist is. It's the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. The other thing to remember in the New Testament emphasis is the danger of being deceived by it. The Bible says to us that the very elect can be deceived. We need to, we need to wake up. So, little horn is a type of Antichrist that exists throughout the church age. And there will be a final Antichrist one day in the future. I believe, at the end of this age, that there will be a personal Antichrist who arises in power. And he will be destroyed at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this information, look it up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and read that. The characteristics and the pattern and the trajectory go something like this. Are you ready? Antiochus Epiphanes IV was an antichrist. He was a little horn of the third beast. Herod and the Herods, for that matter, were little horns of the fourth beast. Nero would be a little horn of the fourth beast. I don't see how you could read the book of Revelation if you were living in that day as a first century person and not conclude that Nero was the fourth beast. You have to. That's why John wrote it was not just for you, but for the contemporary audience who read it. So from the time, many little horns have persecuted the people of God, led many people astray. And all of this is going to culminate in a final Antichrist one day in the future. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ will annihilate him when he comes. So what can we take away from this? If all you ever do is read these prophetic sections and you try to figure out the horns and the heads and work out all the details, I think you're going to miss the big, big picture. I think you'll be worse off for it. In my understanding, one of the weaknesses of the church has been that we do newspaper exegesis. We go by USA Today, or we see Nancy Pelosi rip the transcript, or we, we see certain things, and we think, whoop, apocalyptic vision, and we see a helicopter here and one over there, and we start putting all these details together, and we're so eager to do newspaper exegesis that we miss the big picture that's being communicated to us. Here's the big picture. Antichrist and Antichrist always test the church's resolve, and they will always test our faithfulness to Jesus. Are y'all listening? Is everybody getting this? It's been true throughout history, folks. God has called His church to remain faithful when others would not. The appearance of Antichrist, and ultimately the appearance of the Antichrist, will test our determination to figure out whose king is ours. And if we are going to serve the king and not bow down to the things of this world, that's the point of 2 Thessalonians. The man of sin actually leads people astray. It's the same thing that happens in Revelation 13. He will do war against the people of God. There are always going to be those who stand in hostile opposition to Christ and His people. And if they can, they will lead the people of God astray. Therefore, here's the lesson, folks. As a church of the living God, we need to stand firm. We need to stand firm and be willing to say there is no king but Jesus. Do you know that this happened in vivid color less than 100 years ago in Germany with the rise of Adolf Hitler, who in fact was an antichrist? Do you know what he started doing? He began to encroach upon the church. He began to threaten punishments and rewards to the church. In other words, those scarred pastors were hirelings. Why? Because Germany was a church state. They got their salary from the state. Are you all listening? And so Hitler comes in and says, Hey, if you'll just have this Jewish question answered for us, in other words, kick the Jews out of the church, then we'll pay you your money. These shysters, who were supposed to only belong to one king, his name is Jesus, they succumbed to Hitler. They compromised, and they made a deal with the devil. And there was a small group among them called the Confessing Church that did not acquiesce. As a matter of fact, at first they did, but then they gathered steam and began to think about what was right. They eventually stood firm, and many were martyred for the faith. One's name was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. What an incredible man of God. But these people would suffer greatly at the hands of the Nazi regime. The church was faced with an antichrist, and the question was, will they be faithful? Would they stand for the true gospel? That is no respecter of persons? that sees the Jews and the Samaritans and the Americans and the Chinese and the Australians as one people who need to know Jesus. Are y'all listening? Come on, folks. The true gospel is that God can save anybody, any race, anywhere. And so only a small minority could fail. Everyone else was swept away with the current. And you may not ever see this kind of incredible persecution against uh, the people of God in your lifetime, but you might. But you might. We may be the next generation 
and where the Antichrist actually appears. We very well could be. Now, I don't believe, I'm going to hurt some of your feelings, but I don't believe that the Bible teaches a secret hatch where you're going to be able to disappear and go away and not face tribulation. Now, some of you preaching of guys will fall out with me about that, but I don't care because you're going to go and I go anyway. I ain't worried about it. Okay? I'm just telling you, as an inductive Bible student, there's not a secret hatch in the Bible. Americans like a secret hatch because we don't want to be persecuted. But there's not a secret hatch. Period. When Jesus comes, it'll be all of His glory displayed on the face of the earth. So I do believe in a rapture. And it's synonymous with the second coming of the King. Right? Where He's going to take us to glory. So again, when the people were forced in the Roman society as believers to repent the faith. All they had to do, they didn't even have to believe it. All they would have to do was say, no king but Caesar. And they would live. What kind of striker are you? What, what would you do if all you had to do to not be thrown in there with the gladiators and the lions and everything else. That's what happened to Christian folks. If all you had to do was not even necessary to believe it, all you had to do was say, no king but Caesar. But those believers were not willing to do that. They said and stuck to one phrase, no king but Jesus Christ. And they were persecuted and they died because they would not abandon their faith. We have the same faith. Well, we make excuses to stand firm for Christ. Well, we can't even stand firm for Christ in a comfort, comforting society. I mean, we've been with the times so much. Sexual immorality, pornography, drugs. Do you know how much that's infiltrated churches? When we look around in this building, we think we're all good. We're not good. Period. There's none good. No, not one. We're all pathetic, good-for-nothing losers without Jesus. I hate to hurt your feelings, but I'm just telling you, we're not much. But aren't you thankful for Jesus, who is willing to save sinners? And I'm telling you, folks, you can't stand firm in your schools for Jesus, and you just kneel the mouth around, and you shy away. What are you going to do when it gets tough? What are we going to do when it really gets tough in this country? When your money's gone, and you can't get a job as a Christian. That's the society that Christians lived in for millenniums. We don't know what that's like. But I'm telling you, folks, it's coming one day. Many of us have been lulled to sleep with sleepy indifference. But you know what my job is as your pastor? To help you to be vigilant and steadfast all the way to the end. Amen? All right, I'm tired. I mean, that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? But we did okay. Uh, y'all pray for me. I had a flight out for 150, but it's been bumped to 250. And I'm doing a funeral for uh, a close friend of mine who ended up going down that wrong path in his life. And they found him last week in a hotel bed. And he's going to go uh, His name was Joey Haddon. And uh, boy, for my mom and a wife and his 22-year-old about a year and a half ago was found in his apartment at Harmon University one day before his graduation. He had OD'd on alcohol and fentanyl. 
Young people, don't think it don't be stupid. Oh. One step of your life. So, uh, my flight's supposed to be out at 2.50 now. I don't know what that's going to mean to me when I get to Atlanta, Georgia, to go down to Gus. But would you pray for that family today? Uh, this stuff is real that we're preaching. There's an enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come to give you life, and that more abundantly. My encouragement to you today is to use life. Amen. Oh, God, help us. Lord, help us to stand firm. Lord, we don't know all the nuances. And Lord, I, I could be wrong in, in, in what Daniel 7 is saying, but two things we know are for sure. The ancient of those that have his throne. And the kingdom will be given to the saints. And our God rules and reigns. Lord, you are victorious. You led the captive free. Lord, it's you that removed our chains of sin and free. We are so blessed, so thankful that when the books are opened at the last day, we don't have to fear because our names are written there because of Jesus. We don't have to fear. Lord, thank you for it. And Lord, in this time of invitation, may you speak to our hearts. If there's someone lost in this congregation, Father, would you intercept them? Uh, would you let them see the beauty of Jesus? Your word says it's the kindness of Christ that leads to repentance. We began to think about the massive scope of unbelief. And then your Holy Spirit picked our heart, and we see the beauty of Jesus. And we readily, willingly turn, and we believe in Christ for salvation. God, would you do that today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.